Welcome to the Open Adoption Project. This is episode 71. We are the Nelsons. I'm Sean. And I'm Lynette. Today, we are so excited to have an interview with an adoptee who grew up with an open adoption. So today's episode is with Sarah Vanderhagen, who grew up, like Lynette said, in an open adoption situation. And this is something a little bit more rare for us to have on the podcast. Something we talk about all the time is open adoption. And usually we are talking about people that are 20 years old or in their 20s and younger, um, as this has become more um, established in the United States. But Sarah mentioning herself that being in her younger 40s, um, this was something very very groundbreaking in her time. And I just loved having this conversation with her and hearing her perspectives. And honestly, when we ended our conversation, I just wanted more. I wanted to hear more of her thoughts and wanted to find as many other adoptees who are older, who grew up with openness that I could talk to. Yeah. And also... I don't think that 40 is old, just for the record. Uh, you I, keep saying, I keep saying older, and I'm like, that's not the right word. But in the context. Yes, in context. context. So this is a great conversation. I loved listening to this conversation with Lynette and Sarah. And we'll hear from her own perspective also as an adoptive mother. We'll recap a little bit here at the end of the episode and share a couple more of our thoughts that we've gained from this great conversation with Sarah. So we are here on the podcast with Sarah Vanderhagen. Sarah, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to talk with you. We're really excited to hear from you. So Sarah is an adopted person and she grew up with an open adoption. And we're really looking forward to hearing your thoughts and experiences with that. Uh, to start off, can you share a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I grew up in Northern Michigan um, and after living in a lot of different places have made my way back to the Midwest. Um, And uh, I live in Milwaukee now with my family, um, my husband and my two children. Um, And I am a professor of of rhetoric, uh, which is basically the study of public discourse. I'm in a communication department. So um, I've been doing that for a while. Um, I am 42. So that, you know, I say that because well, A, like when you get to your 40s, it's fine. Like you can say how old you are. You're not worried about it. <laughs> um, and then also uh, because it's helpful for people to place that, I think, in terms of the sort of life cycle of stranger adoptions, I guess you might call them in the 20th century of people who know the history of adoption. So that's that's another reason why my age is important. Um, I like gardening. Uh, I enjoy music uh, and yoga. So those are some things about me. Awesome. Yoga and gardening and music. Those are great things. All right. Well, can you share your adoption stories with us? We would love to hear about your connection to the adoption world. Sure. Um, So I was placed as uh, an infant for adoption in 1980. Um, My adoptive parents first met my, you know, who become my birth mother. Um, And just a note to say, I do use the terms birth mother, birth mom, birth family um, to describe my biological family. Some people call it first family. Um, You know, I mean, some people use all different kinds of names. Those are the terminologies that I have preferred. And those are the term, that's the terminology that we use for our daughter also, although, um, you know, she may choose something different when she gets a little bit older. So, um, you know, I work with language all the time, so it's important for me to define my terms. Um, so my adoptive parents first met my birth mother about a month before I was born. Um, and, you know, today we talk about this as like a match, you know, which a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with, although that was not the language that w- was used at the time because it was like almost nobody had done that before in modern adoption. Um, so I was born on a Friday in June, and um, I just went over this timeline with my parents recently, um, and I they brought me home on a Monday. Um, so I was in the hospital for a couple of days, 
um, my birth mother was not there for the entire meet. She, she left um, before I left, I believe. Um, so my birth mother and my adoptive parents corresponded with letters for the first few years of my life. And then um, when I was three, I met my birth mother for the first time. We have photos of that and all that kind of thing. So, um, and the story is that I, I, like, I knew who she was. I knew my connection to her. And I answered the door you know, when she knocked and I said, hi, I'm Sarah, you must be, you know, I'm not gonna use my birth mother's name or my children's names, but um, you must be so-and-so. Did you know I grew in your tummy? Um, and like, obviously she knows, you know, um, and, <laughs> but that gives you an example of like the kind of child that I was, um, and also the way that my parents had provided me with information that was age appropriate about my adoption. Um, and so I knew this was always a part of my story. I think that is, that's a really important, important part of my experience, at least, um, so since I met her when I was three, I've had regular and ongoing contact with her. Um, obviously, that's like almost 40 years of time, so it's hard to cover everything. But, um, you know, it's been up and down, like any kind of evolving family or personal relationship. Um, so just a few like things to illustrate, like when I was growing up, she would visit a few times a year. Typically, we lived about an hour and a half away from each other. Um, and she would come birthdays and Christmas and things like that. And we would correspond in other ways. Um, and then usually when we were in elementary school, she would take my sister and I a lot of times. Um, my sister was adopted also, but from a different birth family um, and had different levels of contact with her birth family. So my birth mother kind of, um, you know, was like birth mom to both of us in a sense. Um, and she would take, take us like special little outings and we would often go without my parents, um, which is something maybe your listeners are interested in. Um, and yeah, so sometimes we were at my parents' house. Sometimes we were not, sometimes we visited her, you know, there was all these different kinds of ways that we, we interacted. Um, I mentioned that I uh, grew up skiing and doing a lot of like outside winter sports and, uh, she and my my half brother um, on that side, and I'll refer to him as my brother later because that's just kind of like, I, I get tired of using all the different like distinguishing um, qualifiers, I guess sometimes. Um, so when I was in high school, I um, was a competitive downhill ski racer and she and my brother worked at some of those resorts. And so they would come and like watch me um, compete. And, you know, so that was really neat. Um, and uh, there's so many different things. It's like hard to go through all of them, but, um, she was at my wedding. She and my, her husband, not my birth father, um, and my brother and his family were at the wedding at, at our wedding. She and my parents and my husband's parents all did the like parents blessing together, you know, she, I mean, it, she sat with our parents. I mean, it, it was just like really important to us to incorporate her in, on equal footing with the, the other parents. Right. Um, so, so we, we still talk frequently, um, and see each other at least once or twice a year. Um, she is somewhat travel averse and does not fly in planes. Um, and, <laughs> So uh, that kind of limits sometimes seeing each other face to face. Um, and uh, my older daughter, especially, like is always hankering for more like time with, with her. So um, we try to do as much as possible. Um, okay, so I focus primarily on my birth mother because that's been my primary connection to my birth family. But um, I do also have somewhat of a relationship with my birth father's side of the family. I uh, always knew of him, like where he lived. I knew his basic story. I had some basic information, his name and all of that stuff. Um, and I have six half brothers on that side. Um, so I have seven total half brothers. Uh, and I have met most of them, um, all but I think two. 
And I did meet my birth father once as an adult when I was about 25. Um, I, so I first met some of my birth father's family when I was about eight um, and didn't really have like a strong relationship with them, I would say, but my birth mother lived in the same town as most of them. And so she would be like, oh, hey, I saw so-and-so at the grocery store and they, you know, were wondering about how you're doing and da-da-da. So we, we, I would like get information that way. Um, so it was also like a little bit wary, my relationship with my birth father, because like the agency had some, some like negative interactions with him. Um, but I think that's partially because like of his personality, he, he was, um, he struggled with alcoholism, which was, um, reported to me as the primary reason why I was placed for adoption. Um, and, and that was sort of a lifelong struggle. And um, some of the interactions that the agency had with him, he was somewhat volatile, but it was also my understanding that the way that birth fathers were incorporated into the process was very different then, right? Like their rights were not really considered. And so, um, you know, I have theories about how that might've played out for him. Um, he passed away not long after I first met him. So a number of years ago, like almost 15 years ago, I think now. So, but I did meet him once. Um, it was awkward and it was challenging, but, um, he played, he had found out that I had my dad, my adopted dad had given me an accordion because my birth family is Polish. And, um, there's a whole long story there, but, uh, I'll, I'll make the short version here, but, I knew that my birth father had played the accordion. So he did like somebody in the family had a squeeze box and he played a song for me. And later I told my birth mom, like what song he played. And she was like, oh, that was my favorite song that he ever, like he would sing it to her, you know? And so that was a really like special moment. Um, I had a little bit more correspondence with him, but really it's primarily through his kids. Um, and the thing that really led to that was, um, in my early twenties, one of the wives of my brothers on that side sent me a photo album, um, after I had graduated college and was living in Boston. And, um, it was like this beautiful album of everybody in the family and like what they like to do and what they like to do together. And, um, it was just an amazing sort of invitation to, you know, I had known about them and everything, but it was like an overture of like, we really want to know you, you know, and, and we want you to know us and here we are, you know? Um, and so I was like, you know, I think maybe I'm ready for a little bit more of this. And so we started to, um, reconnect a little bit more. And I just, I think about that and I, I think it really exemplifies so Jim Gritter, who's a name that people might recognize from um, reading about open adoption, he was one of the pioneering social workers. He also happens to be, um, he and his wife are my parents' best friends. Um, so that is a big part of my story also that uh, I, it's probably relevant to people who um, know the history of open adoption. Uh, but he has this idea about his, his uh, last book is about hospicious adoption is the phrase that he used. Like, different people in the constellation being hospitable towards one another. Um, and I just like this, that photo book was just like, she doesn't have any biological connection to me. Like she married into the family. Like she might have a vague awareness of like what was going on when I was placed and everything, but um, it just, to me, it was so welcoming. And uh, I think that's a really important thing. That's so beautiful. I love all of these connections that you were able to have. Yeah. I, yeah. And they're so different. They're all like, they're all really different. Um, and, and my relationship with my brothers on that side, um, you know, it, it kind of started and was going for a while. And, you know, then I moved to Las Vegas and I had been living in Chicago and moved to Las Vegas and that's obviously very far away. And then, you know, we moved here and the pandemic happened. So it's been hard to kind of get back to those, but I have maintained connections with them. Um, but it's just not as close as like with my birth mom and my brother on that side. So, um, so as, as I think is clear, openness and adoption is like absolutely central to my experience and my story. And, um, so, so in my case, one of the reasons that I understand my parents were, were 
kind of brought together was because they wanted an open adoption. Like my birth mom wanted that. My adoptive parents wanted that. Like my mom has this story about, she's told me this story several times about how she had this stack of books about like the experiences of adopted children that um, like their social worker had given them. And she was reading through them and she was reading Betty Jean Lifton's book, Lost and Found, which some people might be familiar with. Um, and she's like, I just couldn't take it anymore. She said, I took the book and I threw it across the room. I I will never do this to my child. Like I will never raise a child in this kind of closed system, right? And so they were ready to, um, you know, to do something different. And um, they had been working on this at that agency. And so they were connected with my birth mom. And that's kind of how it happened. So it's, it's always been kind of an important part of my story. Um, and it's my understanding that my adoption uh, was the first um, open adoption in Michigan, which was one of the first earliest states to have open adoption. Again, like in context, mod, I should say modern adoption, right? Because like adoption records really only began to be sealed in the like early 20th century, like 1940s and so on. So, um, and so it's a modern like change, not necessarily like there used to be open adoptions in a different sense, like kinship adoptions and so on. Um, but uh, so it was really like an early kind of thing, right? They were doing this a little bit in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and in Texas um, at some agencies in Texas. So that's, that's an important piece of the whole thing as well. Um, because of kind of my position in all of this, and because, like I said, I was kind of like precocious, you know, like, hey, did you know I grew in your tummy, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> Um, as a kid and I like to talk and I like to write, um, I was, and because Jim Gritter knew my parents so well and knew me, um, I was often asked to like participate in conferences and stuff like that as a teenager and in my early twenties. So I did talk publicly about it quite a bit. Um, and I have kind of a record of things that I've said, which is interesting to see how my perspectives have changed over time. Um, so at, at these conferences, I met a lot of different people who were really great, including adopted folks and practic practitioners and so on. But like, even so I often had to answer really like invasive questions. And I felt obligated a lot of times to answer those questions because like, there wasn't anybody else to ask, like I, and like maybe a few other people were about it, right. Like, they're looking for experiences of open adopted people, like as you've encountered, you know, and I think I felt a lot of times at these conferences, people were like, is she okay? Like, we just want to know if she's okay, you know? Um, and like people sort of expected me to like something to be fundamentally wrong with me. Um, I, I, even though they didn't say that, like I felt it. Um, and so I, I often like fielded very invasive questions, which I had been doing my entire life. So like, right, I was, I was good at it. Um, not that I liked it, but I remember um, somebody who was really important to me at that point in my life and in the adoption community, Joyce McGuire Pavo, who's also um, an adopted person. And she's done a lot of work um, with uh, adopted and fostered youth. Um, she, once told me, she's like, Sarah, you know, you don't owe everybody your story. And I was like, yes, I see that, you know, and she's a lot older than me. Um, and so I was like, she is, a, she's a person who's been around, she knows, like she's experienced a lot of um, interactions with other adopted folks. She herself has been through reunion and all this kind of thing. Um, and at that point, I just was like, you know what? I, I, I think I need to move on to other things. I went to graduate school, you know, I got my PhD and I started going that direction. Um, and so I really didn't speak publicly about it for a long time. Um, I just, I did other things. Um, and so an important part of my adoption story is that I am now an adoptive parent to a 20 month old daughter in an open transracial or, you know, some people use the term interracial adoption. Um, so preparing for and now like playing this new role has really uh, sort of 
accelerated uh, some new processing for me as an adoptive person. Um, and I will note again, in terms of usage, like I tend, I do use the term adoptee, but like, as a, as I was growing up, I didn't like it. Um, because it is a term that prioritizes what has been done to someone like that. They don't have any agency. And I, I know that that's how not, not how many people who use the term understand it. That was just my understanding of it growing up. And so I kind of came to use the terms adopted person or adoptive person um, sometimes. So you'll hear me kind of switching between those, um, but sometimes those get a little like unwieldy. So I say adoptee um, because also it's more legible to a lot of different people. So anyway, um, so I think as an adoptive person, like this whole, like thinking of myself now as an adoptive parent um, is, is like just new territory. And in doing so, I've tried to like, especially understand the limits of my experience as a same race adoptee. Um, and I have tried hard to, you know, really um, learn a lot more about transracially adopted folks' experiences and like what that looks like. Um, so I can think about um, sort of both my privilege as a same race adoptee and my privilege as somebody who has access to my family of origin through open adoption. So that's really something that I've, I've been coming to terms with is my privilege within the adoption community. Um, and so uh, that's, that's been like a process as well. Um, and as I've kind of encountered all these different, as I can kind of come back to, you know, adoptee land, uh, as some people call it, I've encountered a lot of different perspectives and really um, learned a lot that's helped me contextualize my own experience and identify the limits of my experience as, as my own and to really be a uh, the best parent I can be for my daughter. So um, now I can say a little bit about like my role as an adoptive parent. So I am sure that, you know, you as an experienced uh, adoptive parent and some of your listeners who are adoptive parents uh, can appreciate that, um, you know, my, my daughter's story belongs to her. And so I'm going to say some general things about it, but um you know, the details will remain fuzzy as they should um, until, uh, until such time as she wishes to, to share those. So, um, and I'll use initials. I'll, she's J, my older daughter is P. Um, so we knew her birth family um, pre previous to her being placed within our family. We had a relationship with, with, um, her birth, her birth mother, though primarily her birth grandmother, um, and we were ultimately connected um, through her her birth grandmother, and it was so our relationship with her was pre-existing and not, um, you know, initiated by the agency. So we had been in the adoption process and were prospective adoptive parents, um, and like our church knew that, and that's how we were connected with. Um, this family, uh, they, they, we attended the same church and still do. Uh, and so that is how we, how we were connected with them. And once Jay's birth mom decided to place her, um, you know, we went kind of into the normal agency, um, independent caseworkers and all of that kind of thing. Um, so then, you know, she, she was placed, uh, as an infant uh, in our home um, and, you know, came home with us when she was a few days, a few days old. Uh, and we have had an ongoing relationship with her birth family since then, um, including many, many different members, her birth parents, um, birth grandparents on both sides, um, aunts and uncles. Um, and then uh, she also has an older half sister um, that uh, we have a good relationship with. And, uh, you know, so we're sort of figuring out um, names like for them and um, not, not like what is her name, but like how we are going to refer to these new members of our family. 
Um, and also because um, Jay's half sister is now attending the school that my older daughter attends, which my younger daughter will uh, soon attend. So they'll all be going to school together. And so people see them and um, not only are they like different, they have different racial identities, right? Um, so different physical features. And um, my older daughter has a really good relationship with um, Jay's other sister. And so sometimes students are confused by that. And we've had like, you know, how do we deal with that kind of thing? Um, you know, and, and we've used diff tried out different phrases to describe that relationship. But I think our favorite is, this is my sister's sister, right? Like the sister of my sister. Um, so we'll see if that sticks. Um, so that's kind of where we are. That's kind of where we are now. Such a rich and wide experience. Really, really appreciate you sharing. Thank you. Sure. All right. So with your experience where your adoption has been open, your birth mother has been part of your life for such mm -hmm. a long time. Do you feel like you have a unique experience contrasted with other adopted people your age? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I kind of assumed that there would be more of us as I, you know, kind of went on in my life and there are, but not as many as I had hoped, um, or, you know, really predicted, I guess. Uh, and by far, so adoption in general was familiar to me and actually is a pretty significant part of my extended family. Um, I actually have two older, older adopted cousins and two younger adoptive cousins um, in my adoptive mom's side of the family. Wow. So it's like part of our family story. And some of those are closed uh, or were closed, but, you know, people have been in reunion and others are open. So um, the younger ones, the younger than me are open. So, um, so it's, something I was aware of, but I, I also knew there were different kinds of experiences, but um, I think maybe your listeners will be familiar with the fact that like in the seventies and eighties, open adoption was not just uncommon, like it was totally unheard of, yeah. um, at least as far as modern adoption went. Um, and the openness was really the result of kind of some activism on the part of adopted folks who had been part of the closed system and also birth parents, um, who, you know, were like, this isn't good. Uh, and so, so I think my experience, as I've discovered, I mean, when I was growing up, it was pretty unusual. And even coming back now and trying to reconnect with other adopted folks, um, I, and, you know, it's just very, it's a very different experience. Um, and I've really discovered it's been sort of shocking, honestly, to find how unusual my experience is, even among people who are 10 or 15 years younger than me. Um, so that's been sort of an education, I guess. Um, and I, I sort of assumed when I stopped going to these conferences and such in like the early 2000s that we were like, you know, we're on this like kind of march that would just be inevitable to towards greater openness and like better outcomes for, you know, adopted folks and birth families and open records and all this kind of stuff. And that has not happened. Um, and so I think reconnecting and, and, and doing a bit more research on my own has been a little bit sobering to see how little has actually happened on that front. I mean, I'm glad to see increased openness, but not even to the level that I had, I had thought. So, so again, as I mentioned earlier, like part of this process of realizing how different my own experience is, is like really coming to terms with this privilege that I have as a person who has access to all of that. Um, and how fortunate I am to be in that position, you know, to have had the parents, birth parents support system that I have had, uh, that that is not something that I take for granted. Yeah. So how do you feel like this experience with adoption has led you to where you are today, particularly you becoming an adoptive parent? I, you know, I had generally positive experiences of my own adoption. I want to very clearly say again, that these are my experiences and they do not represent um, all adoptees. You know, I think it's really important to recognize that adoptive people like any kind of minority group are not a monolith and have all varied, extremely different experiences. Um, you know, and in large part for no, like, adopted people don't necessarily have a lot of control over that until they get to a certain age, right? 
Um, so because of my really generally positive experiences as an adoptive person, I um, have long considered becoming an adoptive parent. And so I was open to it. Um, I would say my feelings about that have changed over time. Um, I thought that if there was in a case where there was a need for adoption in that instance, um, that the child's interests would be best served, better served to be raised by a fellow adopted person than by somebody who didn't have that, that experience, which is not to say that like people who aren't like non-adopted people uh, can't raise healthy uh, adopted people, right? Um, I think my parents did a, a pretty good job. Um, and I know other people who are, who are uh, doing their best and, and really trying to do right by their, by their kids. Um, but, you know, I felt like this is something that I could really, I could do. Um, and my husband and I talked about this when we first got married, like as a possibility, but it was just generally abstractly. And then, um, when we started trying to have kids, we encountered challenges, um, as many of us do. I listened to some of your earlier episodes, um, from the podcast. So, um, that, uh, was really challenging and it became a real possibility that we would, you know, think about adoption when we were diagnosed with unexplained infertility, went through a whole bunch of fertility treatments. Um, and eventually my older daughter was conceived through IVF. Um, and I'm very glad we had the opportunity to do that, but that was like in part, uh, economic reality, like in the state that we were living in fertility treatments were covered by health insurance. Um, when we were living there and then we moved and it was no longer the case. Um, so, you know, sometimes I don't like to think about that, you know, because like, I am so, so glad that my daughter exists. Right. Um, and, and sometimes like it is with adoption, it's strange to think about alternate realities, but you do. Right. Um, so we decided to pursue adoption when I didn't conceive spontaneously for a few years after, um, you know, because I had heard that sometimes that happens. I knew people who had that experience, but it became pretty clear that that was not going to happen. And um, we didn't want to do IVF again. We couldn't really. Um, and so we decided to pursue adoption. And we started the process when we lived in Nevada and um, were waiting parents there. And then we had to restart the process when we moved to Wisconsin. I really thought I knew a lot about adoption going into the process several years ago when we started. And I did, but I knew certain things, right? Um, I didn't know how much bias there still was against openness and adoption um, and how little had really changed since I was adopted. Um, you know, which at that point was like almost 30 years, you know, um, my adoption education as a process was really, I think of it as like an, an education in the adoption industry, right? Like, and it's shortcomings. Like I knew there were problems because otherwise my adoption wouldn't have been open. Like that was open adoption was a solution to, or perceived as a solution or a partial solution or move towards something better for a problem, right? Secrecy. Um, and so I knew there were problems, but it was the extent and the persistence of the problems that I did not fully understand until I actually went through adoption education. Um, and so I, I wasn't really prepared for that in, in either case. Um, there was something I wanted to mention here in terms of the relationship between infertility and uh, adoption in general that I don't think it talked about very much. Um, so this is a little bit of a tangent, but I, um, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last few years. Um, and the first, they aren't, they aren't often discussed. The first is that I don't think a lot of people often consider like the distinctive and unique pain of an adoptive person struggling with infertility which is not to reduce anybody else's struggles with infertility. Like it sucks. It's, it's, it's very challenging and um, yeah. Uh, and not often talked about, right. But uh, this is particularly something as an adoptive person who's become an adoptive parent, who let's say there are adoptees who feel a certain way about that. Right. Um, who were deeply harmed by the system and, you know, perceive it as even a betrayal for an adoptive person to become an adoptive parent. Um, I totally respect that opinion and perspective, but that is, that's not my own perspective. 
But I think one thing that people don't consider is this like, you know, for, for a lot of adoptive people, having biological children is the only possibility that they ever have in their entire life to live in the same household with somebody who shares their genes. Like the, to be deprived of that opportunity by facing infertility is extremely painful. Um, and so for me, the idea that I would have an opportunity to have a different kind of connection um, and to really be a parent that an adoptive person needed, right, with my experience was an important opportunity for connection with me, or for me, I think. Um, you know, and not that adoption is about the parents, like it should be about the kid, but, you know, I think um, we have to be realistic about the fact that um, there are also adults involved in this, um, and we want, we put the needs of the child first, um, and in doing so, we also have to think about, like, how am I processing and dealing with my own needs um, in, in order to place the child's needs first. So I just wanted to mention that thing about, in, uh, about infertility and uh, my experience as an active person. And then second thing, there's a lot of really important talk about funding and like economics in the adoption industry and really important critiques happening about this. And some of this is happening around adoption fundraising, like by a prospective adoptive parents. Um, and there are a lot of activists like talking about this, how like, what if we actually push this toward first families, right? And um, there are a lot of people doing good work on that and so on. Um, the other piece that I would like to see that I haven't heard people talk about is like, I would really like to see fertility treatment fundraising become a thing, right? Why is it acceptable for people to do adoption fundraising and not like fertility treatment fundraising or, you know, like parents who are seeking to parent their children who can't afford to do so to fundraise just to raise their children, right? To preserve their families. So I'd like to see kind of things shift towards those two things. I know that's a bit of a tangent. So thanks for letting me talk about that a little bit, but I think those things are not discussed very often in the adoption community. And I think we could, we could talk about this a little bit more. So I wanted to mention them. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So looking at specifically open adoption, is there anything in particular that you would want potential birth and adoptive parents to know about open adoption or they consider it and make plans regarding an adoption for that? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to say that, um, and I was, I was reviewing some of the research on this this morning, actually, this is one of the advantages of being a, you know, employed as a professor if you have access to like all this research and the, the research does in my understanding show that an open adoption is better, right? Than closed adoption. Um, and both for birth families and for particularly the processing of grief associated with relinquishing a child. Um, and then also for the adoptive person. Like, I think that's really important to understand that it is like it has been shown by evidence and experience to be healthier than closed adoption. It's the other thing to know about it. I think that's important is that it's a lifelong commitment. Um, like an adopted person does not, like I'm an adopted person like my entire life. I don't get to unbecome adopted. Um, now, I, I heard recently that Australia started to annul adoptions, like there was a woman who had her adoption annulled, um, and that's interesting to me, um, and I don't know that much about it uh, from a legal perspective or anything else, but what that suggests to me is that like, man, the adults in that situation, I don't know anything about that situation, but it makes me very, very curious about how much the adults have failed in that particular situation. So I think it's important to know that for the first number of years, the birth family and the adoptive parents as the adults, like they have to be committed. Like it's a lifelong thing. Um, and there's no, there's really no formula for it. Well, I think a lot of people talk about the uniqueness of every adoption situation, but it's like the uniqueness of every child, right? Like you don't, give birth to a child and then like, oh, you know, like this is my child template, you know, <laughs> like, no, they're like an individual real child who may or may, may not be what, what you thought. 
Um, and the same is true of a child who comes to your family through birth or adoption. Um, you don't parent like the template of your child. You parent your child or like this particular child. Yeah. It's important, I think. Um, finally, I think it's really important for adoptive and birth parents to do as much like of their work as possible before bringing the child into that kind of complicated situation, right? We can't ever be totally ready for parenthood or adopt, you know, birth through birth or adoption, I don't think, but we can be readier, you know, and I think it's important to do what we can to be as ready as possible. Um, this is particularly important, I think, for those of us who are um, parenting children from different racial or ethnic backgrounds. Um, and, you know, to be like adoption should not be, I don't think the beginning of one's, you know, sort of anti-racist journey and work. Um, it should, uh, you know, I, I did not, I, I became the parent of this particular child because of the particular circumstances and, the, and the, the, the connection that we had with her family, not because I was seeking, you know, my husband and I were not seeking to become parents to um, a child of a different race. Um, Necessarily, we were not seeking that, but that is what happened. Um, and so I think it's important for people to be prepared in that sense um, and, and prepared to continue learning and to make mistakes. So, yeah, it's fantastic advice. So, looking back throughout your life, what are some of the things, some things that you've struggled with regarding adoption? One of my biggest struggles, I think, particularly. Um, since becoming an adult and kind of taking a lifelong view of this is how much I've realized that time is a finite resource and I can never, the, the real struggles that I have now are like, I think this is also part of the reality of being a parent to like younger children, um, you know, and, and I also work full time and, you know, all of these different kinds of things, but it's very difficult to find the time that I want for all the relationships that I have that are important in my life. Um, and that is even more true, I think, in open adoption, because you have more relationships, which is amazing and can be a huge blessing. And, you know, I wouldn't, I, I, I think it's totally worth it, but that is a, that is a difficult reality, you know, that as much as I would like to spend more time with my birth family, it's not always possible. Um, so that's that's challenging. Um, trying to think of what one one thing I think I've always thought a lot about is like in, in my role in the adoption community and and so on is um, not in terms of my parents or like the adults that were really close to me, but other adults like. I always felt that they assumed that I didn't know what I was talking about. Like a lot of adults don't believe kids <laughs> or think that they can process hard things or understand confusing things. Um, and so that was a struggle that I had sometimes was like being a child who in many cases, uh, I felt like I knew more than adults, you know? And, uh, I mean, just because of the kind of person that I am, the kind of child that I was, sometimes I was just like, I don't have any time for you. You know, like, if you don't believe me, like, go away. Um, but it is a reality. Like, I was, I was protected by adults who did care about my views and, and like, valued my thoughts. Um, but, uh, you know, I know a lot of kids don't grow up in that kind of environment. Um, and so I think that's a struggle for kids in general, but, like, particularly adopted kids who sometimes struggle to be heard um, by the adults in their lives because they're attempting to take care of the feelings of the adults in their lives. Um, uh, you know, so I think, I think that's a struggle too, um, is to know that you're taking care of yourself and not just the adults um, in your life. So yeah, I think those are two things that I think about a lot in terms of my own challenges that I've encountered. Thank you. So you talked about how your parents gave you this accordion as a way to connect to your heritage. And mm -hmm. I were there other things that they did to help you connect with your heritage? 
they made it possible for me to ask questions, I guess. Um, and, you know, they didn't know that much, but they were able to say like, oh, would you ask your birth mom about that, you know, or whatever, like see what, see what she says. And, um, you know, but I think there's also a, a piece of this like heritage question that has a racial component to it, which is very different from like somebody like me, a white person raised in a white family where like we're all dealing with this kind of like Northern European kind of thing, right? Where white people come to the United States and they're like, not this thing anymore, they're white, right? Um, and, and a lot of times they like, for that reason, think that like, we think we don't have some kind of ethnic heritage or something like that when we do, but we just traded it for like this thing that gave us more status. Um, and sorry, that's the professor part of me coming out. Um, but, uh, but I think that's something that is a little bit more, is a little bit different for a same race white adoptee than it is for uh, in transracial, inter, interracial, and especially intercountry uh, adoptions. Um, but, you know, so my parents did, like my dad got me this accordion um, and, you know, my, my birth father's family is Polish and uh, my family of experience. Um, that is April Dinwoody, who's a, an adopted person. She uses that phrase and I really like it. Uh, my adopted family's uh, background is Dutch. Um, it's my name, my last name, my husband's family is Dutch. We're like, it's, it's a very strong ethnic identity. Um, and so I think uh, making it possible for me to ask questions about, you know, my Polish background and my birth mom's Irish and German to ask about that. And to also consider like the, just the differences in family culture, I think is really important um, because in, in, in economic status and all of those kinds of things, um, which my parents didn't pretend like those differences didn't exist. I think that was important as well um, and enabled me to ask some questions about that, even if they didn't have all the answers. Yeah. So kind of general, but that's really good. And then anything else you would add with the lens as an adoptive parent, any thoughts on helping adopted individuals like your daughter connect with their heritage? Yeah. So I think the most important thing here is to seek out and, um, you know, form relationships if you can, uh, with transracially or international or interracially adopted folks. Um, like I have some of those folks in my extended family, um, or as friends prior to uh, adopting our daughter. Um, but I've, I've since, as I mentioned earlier, been trying to identify other individuals who, you know, I can learn from and listen to, uh, who have experiences that are closer to my daughter, right? Uh, a black person being raised by a white family. Um, there are not as many of those folks who have open adoptions, but they, there are um, some of those individuals. So I think that's really important to talk to people who have lived experience or to understand um, where they're coming from. And second, I think this is kind of going on what I was saying before, this is particularly for white parents, um, I think to recognize like that we as white people also have heritage. Like I think sometimes, like I said, we were like, oh, I, that's something other people do, right? Like, like quote unquote, ethnic you know, people or whatever, like, well, we're ethnic people too, right? <laughs> like we have ethnic backgrounds and national backgrounds. It's just that we don't always talk about that. Um, and so I think kind of delving into your own background is important too, because it's, it, you know, you, sh you should be able to educate your children on, this is part of your background all also, right? Um, and then in doing so, you can, um, you can move toward thinking about educating yourself about the history, about your child's um, heritage and background. And I think it's really important to learn about the good and the bad, right? So like um, in my family, you know, we have to learn about the legacy of slavery and uh, white supremacy and all of those ugly things um, that have affected our world today and like even affected the, the, the fact that the way that our, that our adoption happened, right? Um, and at the same time, really to celebrate 
black excellence and beauty and joy and all of those things. I think that's um, really important uh, for, for our daughter and for our, our family, right? Um, and then finally, I think heritage is part of identity development. I've heard a lot of folks talk about like, oh, you know, learning the culture and like learning how to do different hair types or whatever, like that's the fun part, right? There's a lot of stuff that's really difficult work and like reflecting on yourself and so on. Um, but there's also like ongoing identity development um, that, you know, people do throughout their lives and that you need to come alongside your child um, to do that. And, you know, I have a lot of learning to do on that yet and a lot of um, my daughter's life to come alongside her. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. All right, any thoughts on how your par your adoptive parents helped you manage relationships with your birth family? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, as I mentioned, they did most of the communicating um, with my birth mom when I was younger. Um, and then we had meetings starting when I was three. I, I do specifically remember them man helping me manage feelings when things went in an unexpected way. So I have two examples of this. Um, first of all, when I was about eight, so um, I used to sing in concerts and stuff, solos and things like that when I was a kid. And I was doing a Christmas concert and my birth mom would like regularly come to these things. And one time she brought some members of my birth father's family. And I don't recall being consulted about that by either my adoptive parents or my birth mom. Maybe I was, I, you know, people remember things differently. Right. Um, but meeting them was fine, but I was like really upset about it because I hadn't known that it was going to happen, you know, and I was doing this, like, like I was singing in front of hundreds of people. Right. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I didn't know that these folks were going to like be here. And so that was difficult for me, I think, um, because I hadn't felt prepared for it. My parents really got an earful about it. Like, uh, you know, and so, but they, I remember them listening to me, right. I don't have any recollection of all of what they said in response, but I think the important thing here is that I felt comfortable telling them that I was upset about it and like expressing my feelings and understanding that they would listen to me. Um, so that was important because even just hearing me, I think is the, is the part of managing my, my feelings, helping me manage my feelings and know that I can express them. Um, I moved through that, you know, and like reconnected with some of those folks later, but, um, but that was a hard moment, I think, for me as a child, where I was like, I, I don't feel in control of this situation, right? Um, second, like during parts of my adolescence, my birth mom was going through some tough things and kind of fell off the radar for a little while. And that was really stressful and difficult for me um, because like I was, I was worried that like, is she okay? Like, I don't really know. Um, I worried I would lose touch with her, you know, all those kinds of things. So um, I remember my parents also really listening to my concerns here and my mom particularly encouraging, me, well, why don't you get in touch with her? Like try to get in touch with her yourself. And that's really the point at which I kind of started taking over, I guess, um, own, more ownership of that kind of the communication between us. Um, and those are two things that my parents helped me to navigate. Um, but probably the most important thing was like the language that they used around adoption um, and just the way in which it was normalized for me um, as this is like a way to be, this is a way to be in a family, um, not weird or, or anything like that. So that was important for me as well. Thank you. All right, well, we're gonna have to start wrapping up, which I'm super sad about, but talking about challenges in the adoption community as a whole, what are some of your thoughts on things we could do to make the adoption community better, more ethical, more safe? Yeah. Uh, this is really hard because everybody has different kind of priorities and um, so on. One of your questions that I did think a lot about was uh, adoption education because I have been through so much of it and I've been on kind of both sides of it in a sense. 
Um, I, I think the education for prospective adoptive families is not very good, right? It's not what it could be. Um, at least in my experience, and we worked with two separate agencies in two separate states. Um, so that's an area that I think we could see a lot of improvement on, um, particularly with, and I know a lot of adopted folks are out here saying this, like we need more adopted people doing those trainings um, and agencies like compensating them for that. I'm not saying I'm the person I should ask, like there are other people who have like MSWs and like PhDs in social work and so on, who are also adopted folks who have both experience, um, the expertise of experience and the expertise of, you know, scholarship that I think is an amazing combination. But um, so I would definitely, I, I think adoption education is an area that could use a lot of improvement. I also think, uh, and again, there are a number of advocates and activists working on this, like structural change is extremely important. Um, you know, open, um, I think original birth certificates are a right that every person should have, for instance. Um, you know, and, and I think there's a number of different types of structural changes that don't get a lot of attention because the adoption community is relatively small in comparison to the larger population. I think the Adoptee Citizenship, Citizenship Act, uh, which people were very hopeful was gonna pass at the end of last year and did not, and kind of got cut out at the last minute. Um, which affects, you know, tens of thousands of people uh, was not successful. And so I think those kinds of things are really difficult um, because you just have such a small group and it's hard to make structural change when the vast majority of people in, you know, in the country and around the world have a particular view about adoption that's not really based in reality. Um, and whether it's like this, it's always this sort of, um, extreme view like everything is perfect and adoption is like the perfect solution to these quote-unquote problems right the problems being like me a person right with a baby <laughs> um or or any other adopted person um you know that and, and it's like this beautiful solution and so on and it's it's without any problems or you have like people in i mean I've lost count of how many times you see a movie. Um, I mean, I don't watch a lot of horror movies, but I know that like the adopted person is like often the the like demented character, right? Um, or adoption becomes a plot point in even like a lot of novels and like surprise, like you have a child or surprise, you know, it's like this sort of plot conceit, right? Um, and people have a very negative view. Um, of it. So it's this, it's really, the reality is it's in between, I think. Um, and so I think that's one of the big challenges that people face is because it's really hard to educate people on the realities of adoption when people come into it with such strong views about what it is. And like, even though those views are not based in any firsthand experience or knowledge. Um, so that's, that's really challenging, I think. Well, Sarah, thank you so very much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed talking with you, Lynette. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Open Adoption Project. And Sarah, thank you so much for sharing with us your experiences. Over time, we've had the opportunity to interview many adoptees, a few from open adoption situations and others from closed adoption situations. And I just love how, specifically for Sarah and her situation, that um, she's always had this larger support group, mm -hmm. larger um, connection, more family, and wasn't afraid to ask questions, was in a situation where she was able to have open dialogue with her parents about aspects of her adoption. Yes, I agree. I think that psychological safety where an adopted person feels like they are safe, right? And like able to openly share questions and concerns and just talk about their heart openly without any fear of hurting anyone's feelings or having to think about any of that. I think that's so important. And I love that she was able to have that. And also when someone says they 
grew up in an open adoption. It can mean a wide array of different things. Yes. I loved hearing her talk about her experiences, how it really did seem like an extra, like a familial relationship with her biological family where it really was open. Right. And like the kind of open that we're striving for in our family. Yeah. One part that I really uh, appreciated, and I'm glad that she shared this, was um, she had an event that um, her family was coming to and extra family came or was invited, extra birth family, but she wasn't aware of that. And that kind of just threw her off a little bit, especially people that she hadn't met before. And for me, the takeaway was letting our kids, obviously when they can make more decisions for themselves, but really letting them own how they want to interact with biological family, letting them call the shots a little like bit more. Like be in the driver's seat. Yeah, driver's seat. for yeah. sure. Yeah. So I really, I'm grateful that she shared that with us. And I, I feel like I'm personally walking away with uh, some more knowledge there. Yeah. Just incredible hearing the difference. I know every situation is going to be different. It's not like you can say every individual who grows up with an open adoption is going to have a good experience that there's nothing to guarantee that but i thought it was so interesting hearing her and then some of these younger individuals who grew up with open adoptions and their sense of identity and their confidence there seems to be an overarching difference with open adoption when we're talking to these adopted individuals and i think that's worth noting yeah and it's promising i don't know yeah Yeah, and i mean she did mention that um you know there's been a lot of research done that openness is is more beneficial for children ultimately and so um you know that's our aim to, to help shed light on both sides of experiences to help um help potential adoptive parents or adoptive parents understand more to help adoptees share their voice and help us learn from both any side of their experience. Um, and for, you know, first parents or birth parents also to, to share so that we all come together and are learning what we can best do to make adoption the best that it can be. And the best experience for these individuals who were adopted. Yeah, absolutely. And we've mentioned in a lot of episodes that there are a lot of things that need to have tweaks or adjustments and hopefully our voices mixed with all those that come on the podcast can help that happen. Absolutely. Okay. So another thing that I really liked about this conversation was how Sarah talked, we we touched on this a minute ago, but how Sarah talked about how she had this truly open adoption from the start, even though it was this brand new concept that hadn't really been done right for that time and that era of adoption but looking at that I thought that was really interesting when we started our adoption journey and I think this is how it has been for years and I think it still is this way yeah the definition of an open adoption was so conservative that it was just like oh yeah we can call this adoption open if we're like sending pictures once a year or something like that there's contact right but that's very minimal openness in reality. It's not really giving those relationships. And so I thought that was really interesting that the early stages of open adoption, there, at least in her experience, it was very open. And I'm curious why the more open relationships like that aren't encouraged more. Yeah, and I, I thought it was interesting as well that she stepped away from speaking adoption things and when she came back her assumption would be that openness was kind of the standard yeah like the standard the things would be different yeah and it really didn't change much and so i thought that was really interesting yes but also really disappointing yeah 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 it really just left me feeling so anxious to find ways to help make these changes yeah, and more substantial. And yes, she mentioned that she actually this is probably off mic actually, but I think she mentioned that she had thought a lot more about adoption education that we weren't able to talk with her about. And I think bringing her back to 
to talk about that would be helpful. And just in general, adoption education, uh, the way that hopeful adoptive couples are introduced to open adoption. Um, my fear is that sometimes it's like a 45 minute class where they're required to attend and that's it. Yeah. Well, and you hear, we, at least we do, we hear so many of these terrible stories where someone like, these are stories coming from biological parents who say, Hey, I was told this was going to be an open adoption. And this is what I pictured when I thought open adoption. And obviously that hasn't happened and it's terrible. It's super unethical, but also I really wish that the definition of an open adoption was so broad. Yeah. I wish it was more focused on actual relationship building instead of just any level of contact. Right. Because I don't know, like if you have a friend who you write a Christmas card to every year, I don't, I think you can really say that you have a great friendship. I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. That's not fostering a friendship. You're not not building that friendship. You're not building that relationship. You could still be great friends. I know. I get that. Um, I'm just not in touch very much right now. But when you're trying to build this relationship for your child, it involves, it should involve, in my opinion, work and consistent effort. Well, friends, anyway, yes. Well, welcome to um, our passion and the reason we started this podcast. Uh, we could probably talk about this for hours and hours, but we're which s- is probably why this was one of my very favorite episodes. Yeah. Yes, so, so so important. We're so grateful for Sarah again. We hoped we hope to bring her back on a future episode and maybe pinpoint a couple of topics that we can talk through together. We're so grateful for each of you and being listeners to the podcast, and we are so glad that we can all be in this together in this process of improving the adoptee experience and making openness more normal and natural in the adoption world. We will be back with an episode similar to this one, a discussion with another adopted individual in two weeks. We are so excited for that one too.